Good morning. I'm Susan Denser, Editor-in-Chief of Health Affairs. I have the privilege of moderating this next panel on delivery system reform. A lot of the discussion in Washington obviously is about financing coverage expansion. Most of you in the know know that the real hard part is going to be delivery system reform. As hard as coverage expansion is, the only way healthcare is going to become higher quality, more predictable, more sustainable, and more, uh, more cost-effective over time is going to be if there is substantial delivery system reform. And probably, uh, realistically speaking, uh, since 75% of healthcare spending in the U.S. goes to uh, chronic care, it is in all likelihood chronic disease care reform that will be at the heart of delivery system reform. This is not to say that there can't be lots of efficiencies gained in reconfiguring primary care, as there certainly can be and must be, and as many organizations are demonstrating day to day, whether it's Kaiser Permanente or Geisinger or others, uh, or even for that matter, CVS Caremark in its retail clinic operation. Uh, so it's clear that there must be delivery system reform across the board. Again, the biggest dollars to be gained and the biggest efficiencies to be gained and not coincidentally the biggest improvements in care to be gained are arguably in doing a lot to reform the delivery of chronic disease. As we contemplate all of these issues, we know that there is much to look at. We have the issue of overuse of health care. We have the issue of underuse of health care. And then we have inexplicable, at least to date, enormous variations in the way care is delivered around the country, the Dartmouth Atlas being uh, the exemplar of this. And those of you who read Atul Gawanda's piece in The New Yorker recently saw this come home in spades in the case of McAllen, Texas. We also have huge productivity issues in healthcare. Uh, health care. Uh, uh, many of you perhaps watch the television show House, which is enormously productive uh, cast. Five doctors do all the care in the entire teaching hospital. Uh, they also do their own MRIs. They do their own lab work, their own pathology. They do their own autopsies. Well, not their own autopsies, but they do autopsies on their own patients. And, of course, they also serve as their own CDC. They go out and break into people's houses and do epidemiological research. This is not the way the healthcare system actually works. All of those functions, as we know, are actually done by different individuals. And the healthcare system in the U.S. has been extraordinary in not even trying to capture any sort of labor-saving device for the, for the most part in terms of technology, but just adding more and more and more bodies. So the out, output per, per labor hour uh, is going in the opposite direction of much of the rest of the U.S. economy. So that's an issue that we have to figure out how to deal with. We also know we have enormous inconvenience, relatively speaking, in the U.S. healthcare system, even though it's convenient to access it if you have coverage, relatively speaking, it isn't operating on a 24-7 basis. It continues to live in the world where patients stop getting sick at 5 p.m. every day so the doctor can go home and are never sick on the weekends. And as we know, the data clearly indicates that if you do go into the hospital on the weekends, especially if you go into an emergency department, your odds of your mortality going up are rather substantial because the B team is in place. Uh, so why is a, a system still existing in a non-24-7 world when all the rest of the system is in a 24-7 world? We also have uh, the interesting question of whether all healthcare is truly local or not, as the old cliche goes. 
Uh, is it? Or, and does it have to be that way? Well, if you have a system that is delivered in a hands-on, one doctor, one patient visit relationship, of course it is. What about a system that could take advantage of being able to practice medicine, for example, across state lines? An incredible revolutionary concept. The Mayo Clinic frequently points out that it can do telemedicine to see patients in Gutter and Dubai, but it can't use telemedicine to have a doctor in Rochester, Minnesota, see a patient across the state line in Iowa. Why is this? Why is healthcare still local? Does it have to be local? Are there efficiencies to be gained if healthcare becomes more of a national market? Well, these are all kinds of questions that uh, we have to take up if we think about delivery system reform. And then, of course, there is the final one, which is what is the role of payment? If we pay people on a piecework basis, fee-for-service, of course we get piecework. Is that what we really want out of health care? Particularly, if, is that what we want out of care for the chronically ill? A population of people are going to have to be managed over time. And that gets me to a, a final point of introduction, which is, and what's what do we do about population health? Since it's very clear that unless we do a better job of having a healthier population going into this, we're going to have increasingly chronically ill population coming out the other end. And aren't there some enormously important things that we can do in terms of disease prevention, even if they don't save a dime, probably won't save a dime, will probably cost a lot of money. But frankly, wouldn't we rather have a healthier population that doesn't need to access a healthcare system than the alternative? So these are the questions uh, our panelists are going to take up today, and then some. I've only scraped the surface of what there is to discuss. So let me introduce them now, and then they will speak in sequence. We'll hear first from Shannon Brownlee, who is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation and is the author of Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. Then we'll hear from Alan Entoven, who's the Mariner Eccles Professor of Public and Private Management Emeritus at Stanford University, uh, one of the godfathers of managed competition, for those of you who have uh, memories uh, going back a few years, uh, and we'll be very interested to hear what Alan has to say, particularly with respect to the current uh, debate. We'll then hear from Regina Hertzlinger, who's the Nancy McPherson Professor of Business Administration and the chair of the Harvard Business School and senior fellow of Man uh, at the Manhattan Institute. And then finally, we'll, we will hear from Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. Each of these folks will speak for about 10 minutes, then we'll have a little bit of a conversation among the panel, and then we'll open it up to Q&A from all of you. So, Shannon. Thank you, Susan. You set teed things up very nicely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, and thanks to Michael for inviting me to this, uh, to this meeting. So a few years ago, a couple of guys from MIT named Hammer and Champy wrote a book called Re-Engineering the Corporation. And they said that there were three kinds of companies that need to re-engineer. Um, there's the company, or that does engineer, re-engineer. Um, one kind is a company that's doing really quite well, but has a very ambitious CEO and wants to do an even better job. Um, two, the kind of company that sees competition and trouble on the horizon and wants to get ahead of the game. And number three, the company that is so dysfunctional and inefficient that it's in danger of going under. And um, if ever there were an industry in need of re-engineering for the latter, for the third reason, it is the U.S. healthcare system. Um, I've spent the last six years traveling around the country talking to hospitals, healthcare policy experts, uh, administrators, physicians, patients. And what I've seen 
is that a great deal of our system is deeply dysfunctional, um, fragmented, and chaotic. So, um, and, and, you know, when the topic of reform comes up, right now we're focusing so much on the coverage issue, but the really hard problem, as Susan said, is it's the, the delivery system, stupid, to paraphrase a, um, a former presidential campaign. Uh, and I feel a little sheepish talking about dysfunctional and chaotic because I walked out the door this morning without the notes that I typed up last night for this talk. So how do we know we have this dysfunctional system, this chaotic system? Well, we've got fifty to 100,000 people dying each year from medical error. That makes medical error. Even if you take the low number, it makes medical error one of the leading causes of death in this country. We've got patients being... Uh, we've known about medical error for more than a decade and that this is an enormous problem, and somehow we not, have not been able to make much of a dent in the rate. We've got high rates of hospital infection. We've got, um, we've got adverse events. We've got drug interactions. This is a real problem. Um, we also lack, physicians lack the evidence that they need to know how to treat the right patient at the right time with the right treatment. The Institute of Medicine says about 50% of what physicians now do is backed up by valid evidence. And the rest of it is theory, conjecture, marketing. Um, it may have no better effect on patients than bloodletting. It certainly doesn't have any more evidence behind it. And, and I think about this in terms of um, what if a pilot came out of the cockpit of the plane and said, I know what half the dials do up here, but I still think I can fly the plane. We might be a little bit nervous, and for some reason we don't have that same sort of sense when, uh, when it comes to health care. Um, we know there's also an enormous amount of waste in the system. The estimate is about 20 to 30 cents of every health care dollar spent is spent on care that is unnecessary and potentially dangerous. That's 600 to $800 billion a year of care that patients don't need and probably wouldn't want if they understood the risks involved. Unnecessary care kills an estimated 30,000 Medicare recipients each year. That is also a leading cause of death. Four, we know we have an oversupply of beds and physicians in certain parts of the country and that our system is very top-heavy. It's heavy with specialists and light on primary care physicians. We also know that not all providers were created alike. So some parts of the country, the delivery of health care is far more chaotic and there's far more unnecessary care being delivered than in, um, in their other parts of the country. And at this point, I'm sure everybody has heard of McAllen, Texas. It's the most expensive city in the United States for health care. And it's not expensive because prices per unit of service are so much higher. And it's not more expensive because patients are so much sicker in McAllen, Texas than any place else. It's more expensive because they deliver more services per capita. And they're no better quality. In fact, many of the hospitals have lower quality on average, and um, they're certainly not getting better outcomes. They're just delivering more care. So we have a lot of McAllen's in this country. The Dartmouth Atlas has um, been demonstrating this for the last 15 or 20 years. Jack, Jack Wenberg's been doing it for a lot longer than that. But we have Los Angeles, we have Miami, we have Boston, we have D.C., we have Northern Virginia, we have lots of parts of Texas, New York, all of New Jersey. These are carpeted with inefficient hospitals that are effectively churning patients. They're giving patients all kinds of care that doesn't do them any good. And I'm not suggesting that these places are, are, have more greedy doctors in them than any place else, doctors who were sort of saying, aha, another patient, another sale on my boat. I think that distribution is probably fairly uniform. 
um, and they're no different from any other profession. It's that the way care is organized in these places, people are working within a chaotic system. And these are the regions that are driving costs up. Um, It turns out that these regions of the country are driving our costs up far faster than any other region, the other regions in the country. So that's the bad news. The good news is that there are parts of the country that are dominated by organized multi-specialty group practices, it turns out, that are actually delivering better care for less. Um, these are places like the Leahy Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, Geisinger, Intermountain Healthcare, Kaiser Permanente. Um, and we know that they're better doing a better job, um, and we know that they are they're delivering higher quality care. Their outcomes are no worse. In many cases, their outcomes are actually better. And their physicians are working in teams. They're coordinating care. They're doing things in a very, very different way. Um, And this is particularly important for the chronically ill, which is where we spend most of our money, and we spend most of our money on them for hospitalization. So obviously, delivery system reform has to drive drive towards greater efficiency, greater coordination of care, better use of available evidence. And the question is, are the policy proposals that are coming out of the White House and the Congress right now, are they really going to add up to that kind of delivery system reform? Um, Now, many of them are very, very good ideas. Many of them are aimed at cost control. But I'm not sure that the sum of the parts is really going to help the delivery system really change. Um, And it kind of reminds me of that game that was in the 1960s on television called um, Supermarket Sweep, I think, where people got a shopping cart and they got to fill as many, they get to throw things into the shopping cart in a certain amount of time and then they got to, they got to keep whatever they threw into the shopping cart. And um, right now we're throwing policy ideas into the shopping cart. And somebody, I think a lot of people want to ram it through the congressional checkout line before anybody really notices what's in the cart. (laughs) But it's not clear that these policies are really going to add up to the kind of um, re-engineering that we need. So some of the things that I think we need to think about. Number one, we need to lower the boom on these big spenders, these really profligate hospitals. Um, One way to do that is for Medicare to basically say, no mas, no more. We're going to give you a budget cap. Uh, It may be something like the 95th percentile of what hospitals spent last year. Um, And you don't have to hit too many hospitals to get their attention, and you don't have to hit them too hard. You simply have to hit them in a way that says you can't keep doing business the way you've been doing it. You need to reorganize yourselves. This will send a signal to the hospitals. It will also send a signal to the bond market where hospitals go to get money to expand, which is what many of these hospitals in these overbedded areas are already doing. Um, that are in areas that are already overbedded, they're they're building more. They're building more ICU units. They're building more beds. Um, so, to give you an example of sort of the enormous range in what hospitals, um, what Medicare is spending on comparable patients. If you look at chronically ill patients in the last two years of life, as the Dartmouth Atlas has done, Hahnemann Hospital in Philadelphia uses up $105,000 per recipient in the last two years. Uh, of life, whereas Scott and White Memorial in Temple, Texas uses up $27,000 and the Mayo Clinic uses $55,000. These patients are all very sick and you can't argue that a place like Mayo Clinic is spending less because it's rationing. So number two, we need to develop this idea of the accountable care organization where hospitals and doctors become accountable for how well they care for patients and we have to ease their pain as they become more efficient because in the land of health care, becoming more efficient leads to lower revenue. No good deed goes unpunished. 
So we need to find ways to share savings with them, somehow reward them for becoming more efficient. Number three, we need to create a primary care infrastructure. There are a couple of ideas out there for um, paying physicians a little bit more. The medical home is one of those ideas. Right now, the medical home is really just four walls and a, and a roof, and uh, it's not yet a home. So we need to start thinking more seriously about how to truly rebuild the primary care or build a primary care infrastructure. And number four, we need a rational workforce policy. We basically leave workforce policy to the academic medical centers, and so that's one of the reasons we are um, heavy on specialists and light on primary care physicians, because they get rewarded for training specialists, and the taxpayer picks up the bill. So is there a role for consumer-driven health care, price sensitivity for the market to work in these, in these areas? I think there absolutely is. Um, but mostly it's in, I believe, in discrete elective services like elective surgery and elective tests and procedures. Um, for example, we could have higher co-pays to lower demand for um, bypass surgery in patients where the evidence suggests that the um, benefit is going to be very low. But a better way to do that would be to help patients really understand what the trade-offs are when it comes to elective procedures and tests and surgeries. It turns out that patients are often more conservative than their physicians think they are when they really understand three things, that there are trade-offs, that some of those trade-offs often involve very serious side effects, and that it's their decision. That's why it's called elective. Um, when patients are able to have access to patient decision aids to share that decision with their physician, they tend to be less likely to demand these kinds of ex expensive procedures. So um, those are some ideas that we can talk about. Thank you again to Michael for inviting me, and I look forward to hearing the rest of this panel. Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Shannon. Um, so the question is, where does delivery system reform fit in? As Susan said, reform of the delivery system is absolutely essential for overall system reform because it is high-performance delivery systems that can and do reduce spending while improving quality. Uh, basically, what we need to do in healthcare is make the transition from a 19th century model, kind of a cottage industry, to something that looks much more like the modern firm with ability to measure its performance, with processes to improve the performance, uh, and, and the like. Traditional fee-for-service, the 19th century model of small autonomous practice, has shown itself to be unaffordable and to be incapable of improving quality because quality is a system property. Uh, the fee-for-service model which dominates our healthcare system, punishes cost-reducing innovation with less revenue. It actually rewards poor quality with more revenue. Uh, it rewards overuse and wasteful duplication of tests because the people who do the duplicate wasteful tests make money off of that. Um, it is oriented to acute episodes. Maybe that was good for the 1950s, but, in fact, studies show that some 75 to 83 percent of healthcare spending is on people with a chronic condition. And the episodic fee-for-service model just doesn't pay for that. Uh, and a lot of what you need for the chronic care is not doctors and paid doctor visits. What you need are teams that have a lot of non-doctor personnel that Medicare typically doesn't pay for. Uh, 
This traditional model lacks capability for system improvement in coordination, economy, safety. It leads to a great deal of inappropriate care, as RAND studies have shown. Wide unwanted variations in practice patterns, as Wenberg and Dartmouth have shown. It lacks a business case for deployment of information technology. We have an absurd thing now where we're proposing to spend billions of dollars giving uh, computers to doctors who don't want them. Um, <laughs> uh, I have to tell you one of the reasons they don't want them. A couple, couple, couple uh, months ago, there was an interesting article in Health Affairs about the experience of Kaiser Permanente in Hawaii. A Kaiser has leading-edge information technology, which, among other things, includes uh, comprehensive electronic records and secure email between doctors and patients. They got that up and going, and what they found was that uh, demand for doctor visits dropped by 26 percent. 26 percent. Now, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. You know, often you want to ask your doctor a question or two. And so in the bad old system, what you have to do is leave your office, go down to the parking lot, get in your car, lose your parking place, go to the other place, find a parking place, go up into the doctor's office, go into the examining room, take off your clothes, and then tell her your question. <laughs> it just, I'll tell you, having secure email with your doctor sure beats that. Uh, I think it's especially important it's impossible to moderate cost growth in the traditional open-ended fee-for-service system because there's no market force for right-sizing capacity. In the recent Dartmouth-White paper and in Wensberg's work, they've come up with an exceedingly interesting and important point that they call the supply-sensitive services. Medical science doesn't tell the doctors whether they should visit the hospitalized patients once a week, once a day, twice a day. I mean, there's no literature for that. So there's kind of like a Parkinson's law. If the doctors are there and available and have the time, then, and there's fee-for-service so they can rack up a lot more visits, then they rack up more visits. That explains what's going on in Miami compared to Minnesota. Um, doctors have no systematic way of knowing whether or how treatments work over time because they have no longitudinal comprehensive records. Therefore, they have no reliable uh, numerators and denominators. I could give you examples of this, but just think about it. Does your doctor track you for the outcome of the procedure over a... Now, if you show up and complain or if you show up and are happy, but that's not, a, that's not an adequate uh, scientific sample. Now, I am confident that high-performance integrated delivery systems will emerge as winners in competition for informed, cost-conscious consumers on a level playing field. Uh, you know, people often ask me, is this such a great idea? Why haven't they taken over the world? Well, there is a story about that. It, for the first half of, 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 this, uh, of the 20th century, the organized medical profession behaved in outrageous ways using anti-competitive behavior. They even lost a case before the Supreme Court, et cetera, antitrust violations. Uh, Bad-mouthing, kicking you out of the medical society and so forth. And then about the time that began to calm down, the IRS, the federal government turned health care insurance over to employers, and employers don't like to offer choices. Uh, but anyway, those few employers that I'm going to talk about that do offer choices and a fixed dollar contribution, so the menu is in front of the, of the people, choose integrated delivery systems with remarkably high percentages. Uh, this is illustrated by the experience of Stanford University, where I chair the Benefits Committee, and we have a managed competition model. Stanford pays the low-priced plan, give you a range of choices. If you want fee-for-service, 
go go to it. God bless you. But you do the extra cost with your own money, not with your fellow workers or the taxpayers' money. Except the tax code does tax subsidize the more costly choice. Uh, the University of California, same story. At University of California, Stanford, 81% of the employees have chosen uh, integrated delivery systems based on prepaid multi-specialty group practices. It's impressive because we have a non-integrated delivery system on the Stanford campus, and 81% of the employees choose to go elsewhere. Uh, uh, state, state of employees in, in Wisconsin, another excellent managed competition model. Over 90% there have chosen integrated delivery systems and HMOs. Um, so uh, given the chance, I think the experience of these groups shows that people do migrate to value for money. Now, the hallmarks of delivery systems, integrated delivery systems, include, first of all, incentives alignment. That is, in aligning the incentives of the providers with the needs and wants of the patients for high-quality, affordable care. And usually that, in fact, almost always that translates into salaried doctors with bonuses for high-quality performance and for pleasing the patients. Uh, they have management structures with processes to improve quality and cost. They have capabilities to right-size capacity so their doctors are busy and not motivated to generate uh, unnecessary supply-sensitive services. Uh, they perform integrated coordinated care using shared comprehensive longitudinal records so that doctors can track outcomes over time and act on the information. A year or two ago, there was an important article in uh, Lancet about uh, Kaiser Permanente. The doctors were always very suspicious about Vioxx because there were some non, there, there were some incidental findings that showed a great deal of heart damage. And so they used it only extremely sparingly. Then they did a study where they tracked uh, patients over several years, and they found the predicted high incidence of, of uh, heart damage, and they published that, and Merck withdrew the product from the market. Um, so that, that kind of tracking through records is important. They have shared practice guidelines so that how to treat a particular kind of patient is worked out by the doctor committee studying the literature, consulting their experience, and so forth, and then reaching agreed practice guidelines. It's done there and not at the bedside, where you know they don't fight it out uh, by the, the, the team players that are playing for your care uh, have worked out and agreed on what the plays are. Uh, uh, alignment of incentives, as I mentioned, to use resources optimally usually a common revenue stream for doctors and hospitals and drugs. So they have an incentive to make decisions uh, on the total benefit versus the total cost. Uh, and they eliminate physician conflicts of interest. This is a major problem. For example, orthopedic surgeons, I was recently uh, trying to get some people to modify the practices out in California. Say, why can't you get the orthopedic surgeons to do what they do in Kaiser, which is... Uh, you know, form teams, figure out best products, negotiate, and so forth. They said, well, the first problem is so many of the orthopedic surgeons get two hundred or $250,000 retainers from the manufacturers of the devices. So one of the things that's necessary is to clean up the conflicts of interest. Uh, these systems emphasize primary care, early detection and treatment, health promotion, disease prevention, and management. You know, the president wants, uh, we're going to solve the problems with IT, prevention, evaluation, and so forth. And I say, 
there are organizations that have been systematically doing that for years. Uh, I think integrated delivery systems will improve quality for several reasons. One is by reducing errors because mistakes cost money, by establishing and enforcing quality-enhancing processes, such as, for example, wash your hands between patients, wash your hands. You know, that's a great big issue now. A year or two ago, Dr. Pronovost at uh, Hopkins came out with this breakthrough uh, uh, process improvement, you know, checklist. Or, you know, the traditional docs don't like checklists, but there are five things to do. The first one was wash your hands. Wash your damn hands, doctor. <laughs> that's still being fought over. So uh, in these integrated delivery systems, they're team players. The research shows it's better to wash your hands. They wash their hands. Uh, if a doctor makes a practice of not doing so and it shows up in infections, you can be sure there'll be no bonus. Um, measure results and act on the information. Continuous qual quality improvement and process redesign uh, to take full advantage of information technology. Uh, information technology for, for customer service. I mentioned the case of Kaiser in Hawaii. I'll tell you, getting cared for by a system like that is just fantastic. I mean, I can give you a lot of examples, but uh, it's, just, it's just really neat. But before I can have my annual physical, I email my doctor and I say, this appointment is coming. Please order the tests uh, now and let me know you've done it. Then I'll go and get my blood drawn and so forth. And the next day, there on my computer screen are my test results. And they're also on her computer screen. So it just saves, you know, it saves an appointment among other things. They use information technology for caregiver support tools, such as reminders, alerts, and the latest practice guidelines. Now, integrated delivery systems are not for everybody. Some people don't want that. Uh, for example, Professor Herzlinger has written that she doesn't want her care managed, and I would defend to the death her right to choose uncoordinated, unmanaged care. I can't imagine why... Why well, one would want it, but, <laughs> but I believe very strongly people ought to have choices. So how do we get there from here? Well, I'd refer to this experience that people given informed, cost-conscious choices where there are delivery systems like this in the neighborhood, in very high percents, 80, 90 percent, choose them. So one of the problems is most employers cannot or do not offer employees the opportunity to save money by choosing a more economical delivery system. I completely agree with Mr. Crane that we need to decouple health insurance from the job. That's a terrible blockage in the market. I mean, people don't appreciate how bad that is, but it really is. In 1978, I wrote an article for the, which Harvard Business Review published called Consumer-Centered Versus Job-Centered Healthcare, hoping to make the case and get people interested in this issue. But, uh, you know, Harvard Business Review, nobody reads that. <laughs> if we want efficient economical care, we need a market that rewards it with customers. So people need to be free to choose it if that's what they want. And employers mostly lock people into fee-for-service costs. Some states saddle HMOs with costly benefit mandates that do not apply to their competitors, the self-insured preferred provider schemes. That needs to be corrected. That is, we need a level playing field with the same uh, rules for everyone. Of course, the tax code subsidizes more costly care, so the exclusion must be capped. In fact, I've worked with the Committee for Economic Development, and we've done a, a report. You can find it on the website, www.ced.org, called Quality Affordable Care for All Beyond the Employer-Based Health Insurance uh, System. 
and uh, stressing the importance that everybody have an informed, cost-conscious choice of delivery system. Uh, I think if we did that, uh, it, the experience of the systems, you know, there's nothing weird or unusual about Wisconsin employees or, I mean, uh, Congressman Ryan was one of them. Um, he probably liked it. So I think that experience could be generalized. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'd like to thank the Cato for organizing this fabulous meeting. You know that I teach in a case method business school because I'm the only person to use PowerPoints. Uh, so they take away your tenure if you don't use them. I'm a little worried about this because it's 12 o'clock woman's voice, you're waiting for lunch, but I'm an old teacher. If any of you fall asleep, I'm going to see you, even if it's dark in here. Uh, so uh, I'd, I'd like to talk about health care reform that's going to improve health care delivery. And I'd like, thank you very much for putting that light on. I'd like to uh, have us learn from other parts of the economy. After all, the U.S. economy has become more productive over time. And despite our mammoth size, we are incredibly entrepreneurial. And the structure of the economy has changed a great deal. So productivity means we've gotten simultaneously better and cheaper. How did we do that? Well, there were three stages of organizational evolution. First one, in our economy, after the Industrial Revolution, we had a number of mom-and-pop firms. It's analogous to what we now have in the healthcare system. They were little companies, they were inefficient, and they produced goods and services of variable quality. Second stage of the evolution in our economy was consolidation, and it was mostly accomplished through vertical integration. In other words, one firm owned everything. It produced things, it marketed things, it did everything about them. And the reason they were vertically integrated is there was very little infrastructure in the United States. There were immature capital markets and it was very difficult to communicate with different kinds of producers. An example of this is some of you may have seen these iconic photographs of the Ford Motor Works of the River Rouge plant. Uh, they're beautiful sepia-colored photographs. And they're what most people think about when they think about industry. What did they make in the River Rouge plant? You may think that the Ford Motor Company made cars in the River Rouge plant. You would be wrong. The Ford Motor Company made steel in the River Rouge plant. And Henry Ford, who was, of course, an incredible monster who hated blacks, hated Jews, hated unions, hated his own son, Edsel, who ultimately got his reward uh, his uh, revenge on the old man. Henry Ford was an incredible genius as well. And what he did in his vertically integrated firm was not only to bring economies of scale, but he was also a brilliant engineer 
who, among other things, developed a new way of making steel for cars. Major motion picture studios used to own their own theaters. Now, why did they own their own theaters? Well, there were no theaters, and they had to create their own theaters in order to distribute their supplies. Stage three, which we're now in, and we've been in it for about 20 years, is very different. We now have networked firms which outsource work to focused factories, and this improves quality and efficiency. And the reason it does that, for example, for many years I was on the board of the great company John Deere. Uh, John Deere nearly went bankrupt in the late 1980s, and it restructured itself to this kind of networked organization, and they had outside suppliers who created batteries for them, created various parts of the tractors for them, and the reason they were better than Deere itself in doing it is that's all they did. They only made batteries. They only made rear axles. And when it's all you do, when you're very focused, you get better and cheaper at it. So as an example of the network company, I guess the most common example is Dell, which is a company that totally outsources what it does. The Coca-Cola company is a marketing machine. Coca-Cola bottling is separate from Coca-Cola marketing because the kinds of people who are interested in putting sugar water into bottles are very different from the kinds of people who are interested in creating new products. Um, the John Deere. John Deere makes farm equipment, but it has a totally separate distribution network. These are separate companies from John Deere. So my point is the economy nowadays, because of our great capital markets, because of the innovations in information technology, makes it possible to have discrete organizations that are focused on something. And because they're focused, the totality of them is much more efficient than old vertically integrated organizations. The movie industry is a very good example of that. It's now fragmented. The major studios have lost virtually all their power. In fact, the most powerful people in the movie industry is the individual talent, the actors and the producers and the writers. And uh, they are now a networked industry. So healthcare, as the prior panelists have so persuasively argued, is now at stage one of industrial organization. It consists, the delivery system consists of fragmented mom and pop kinds of organizations with all the problems in quality and efficient and efficiency that accompany that kind of industrial structure. The question is, should it go to stage two, vertically integrated, as Alan Enthoven has so persuasively argued, or should it go to stage three, networked-focused factories? Stage two, I don't think so. Why is that? It is not that vertical integration is 
not desirable. It's very desirable. It's that it is infeasible. It is very difficult to get excellence in everything in one organization. The great firm Humana, which was at the time led by David Jones Sr., an exceedingly brilliant man, tried to develop vertically integrated organizations off the base of its hospital uh, company, tried to introduce an insurance company into this hospital base. What happened? Well, the insurance company wanted to sell insurance by minimizing costs. The hospital company wanted to maximize delivery of services. This is a classic business problem which businesses try to solve with a mechanism called transfer pricing. David Jones concluded that despite his incredible mastery of business, integrated systems were not feasible. This is a picture of a mule. Uh, the, uh, it's hard to tell, but that's meant to be a mule. So uh, the few vertically integrated systems that are successful, like Kaiser and the Mayo, have found it virtually impossible to replicate. Now, like mules, which are sterile. Now, why is that? Is it because the environment is so hostile? Or is it because it's very difficult to overcome the inherent conflict of interest in vertically integrated firms? In my mind, it is clearly the latter. Kaiser is a great organization. Mayo is a great organization. But they're very specific. If any of you have ever visited Rochester, Minnesota, you know that it is a small town totally focused on the Mayo Clinic. People have worked in the Mayo and at Kaiser for three generations. The physicians there are trained at the Mayo Medical School. It is a culture. It's a unique culture. The idea of trying to replicate that throughout the United States, most business people would say, you know, forget about it. I can replicate a McDonald's. I can replicate a Starbucks. But if you take a culture-rich organization like that, no way it can be done. So I think the right stage three is to have network-focused factory. And by the way, uh, Alan Enthoven said I didn't like uh, integrated delivery systems that I prefer lack of management, uncoordinated systems, not at all. Question is, who's doing the management? I want to do the management, thank you very much, not some integrated delivery system. So what about the network-focused factories? Healthcare costs are so high and quality so variable because of the absence of integrated medical care, especially for those with chronic diseases and disabilities. All the speakers have made this point. Focused factories, by which I mean organizations that are focused on chronic diseases. For example, diabetes, an organization that does everything you need for diabetes. What do you need for diabetes? Well, diabetes destroys the circulation. So any part of your body that has a lot of circulation, 
your eyes, diabetics go blind, your heart, number one cost of diabetes is heart disease, your kidneys, number one users of um, of dialysis centers are diabetics, you get neuropathy, uh, ulcers that don't heal. You need a whole team of people to help you manage your diabetes. If we had focused factories that focus on integrated care, the people who create them, and I'm totally agnostic as to who would create them, Genius comes in very strange packages. Michael Dell, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. Most people would have described Gates as a Harvard dropout. Uh, I think he did pretty well. We don't know who's going to create the great innovations. But the focused factory environment is an incredibly inviting one. For example, from a financial point of view, business point of view, a small town of 50,000 people, do you know how much it spends on diabetes? $50 million. Just a small town. So in this small town, you could generate a number of competitive focused factories. They could do well, and they could also do a lot of good because, as has been uh, talked about before, chronic disease patients are typically mistreated, and when providers get together and organize around chronic diseases, they do it much better. Um, one of the reasons they do it much better is they can be held accountable for their outcomes. Right now, if you're a diabetic, who is responsible for your care? Who can you hold accountable if there were focused factories for diabetes, for asthma, for, uh, for AIDS, for cancer, they could be held accountable. After all, they do everything that's needed. Focused factories like Duke's Congestive Heart Failure Center make it both better and cheaper. Duke Medical School spent nine, uh, saved $9,000 in one year on the treatment of congestive heart failure, uh, just by integrating the care and doing all the things that Alan Entovern uh, talked about. But the more they improve the care of people under the current payment system, the more money they lost. The way they saved $9,000 per person per year is they kept them out of the hospital. When they kept people out of the hospital, they got paid less. The Duke Medical Center makes most of its money out of the hospital, so the payment system penalized it. No good deed goes unpunished when it comes to health care. So what do we need in health care reform to enable health care to move to stage three? And uh, McKinsey, that great consulting firm, did a study of why U.S. health care costs so much more than those of the other countries and there are other countries like Switzerland that have terrific health care. They did the, the analysis by adjusting the comparison for the wealth of the country because the wealthier countries clearly spend much more than poorer countries. Their conclusion was that the U.S. spent half a trillion dollars more than the European systems, which is not the greatest of benchmarks because they're pretty inefficient too. 
because of the inefficiency in our delivery system. So we really need to move to stage three. So what are the health care reforms? One reform that's very important is to stop payment from being a year at a time to enable long-term payment. If a set of providers were paid for five years or ten years, they might have an incentive to spend money in the first one or two years knowing that in year five or in year ten they will recoup that money through the better health of their enrollee. Our one-year insurance system is ridiculous. There is no other part of the financial system where contracts are made one year at a time. Can you imagine buying a mortgage with a one-year contract? Why do we buy health care with one-year kinds of payments? Second kind of payment reform that we need is we need to have comprehensive payment to these focused factories. Right now, everybody's gain is somebody else's loss. It's a zero-sum game. If we paid for a team of providers who did everything for your diabetes, for your AIDS, for your congestive heart failure, this this, uh, destructive turf warfare would stop. The third thing we need is transparency. How can we have people selecting who's good and not good if they have no idea how how good they are? I know more about the raisin bran that I eat for breakfast, very reluctantly, but the age of 65, got to do something. So then I do about a physician who might do a mastectomy on me or the hospital in which she practices your good health. Thank you. As I was driving down here this morning, I was listening to a story on NPR about a group of people who uh, get together every June 16th to listen to the, uh, or actually I should say to celebrate Bloomsday, James Joyce's Bloomsday. And this is a group of people in Ireland who get together to do this. So one small problem, none of them has read the book. Uh, (laughs) Nonetheless, they get together in great earnestness and celebrate. I would just make a note that we do have a a little bit of a built-in problem today in that none of us is actually in the business of delivering health care. So... Uh, we uh, we have a, a, a sort of a stilted uh, conversation as a consequence of it, although lots of areas of convergence. So now we're going to hear from our final panelist, Michael Cannon, and then we're going to open it up to discussion. So, Michael. That makes me think of actually a few healthcare articles that are often cited but never read, as they say. Uh, thank you, Susan, and, and to all of our other panelists for coming to speak uh, here at Cato today. Again, I'm Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Our basic uh, approach to health care reform is that it should promote freedom because greater freedom will make us both healthier and wealthier. Uh, and uh, I'd like to talk about one of the ways that I think greater freedom uh, would do that today, and that's by uh, encouraging uh, higher quality care by reforming the, the, the way we deliver care in the United States. Now, the United States leads the world in certain dimensions of health care quality. American patients have more uh, have readier access to care than patients in many other countries, and if it's an important new medical technology like MRI, CT scanners, ACE inhibitors, balloon angioplasty, statins, cataract surgery, chances are it was developed in the United States, and America then exports these medical technologies to other nations where they can improve other nations' health statistics and other nations' health systems can take credit. 
At the same time, however, America's healthcare sector uh, uh, or researchers have documented a long litany of quality failures in America's healthcare sector, and these bear emphasis. One is a lack of emphasis on preventive care. There's a lack of evidence about which treatments are most effective and most cost-effective. And even where we have that information, it can take years to affect medical practice, so patients only receive those highly effective services about half of the time. We have, expert, we have what experts call a fragmented delivery system, which means that doctors don't coordinate the care they provide to a shared patient. Uh, patients have to chase down paper medical records and prescription information because American medicine has yet to adopt electronic records, something that we see in every other sector of the economy. Estimates suggest that doctors misdiagnose their patients' ailments uh, 10 to 20% of the time, and there are about 1.5 million medication errors uh, in the United States each year, which means that patients can expect one medication error for every day they spend in the hospital. The Institute of Medicine estimates that 20,000 Americans lose their lives every year simply because they lack health insurance, but the same Institute of Medicine estimates that five times, up to five times as many people lose their lives because of medical errors. The United States leads the world in generating new knowledge and new technologies, yet we fall far short of potential when it comes to applying that knowledge. And as surgeon and scholar Atul Gawan writes, quote, where we've made a science of performance... Thousands of lives have been saved. Indeed, the scientific effort to improve performance in medicine can arguably save more lives than research on the genome, stem cell therapy, cancer vaccines, and all the other laboratory work we hear about in the news. Nowhere, though, have governments recognized this. End quote. And it's not hard to see why what experts call the healthcare delivery system falls short. Earlier this decade, an innovative program in Bellingham, Washington, in hired nurses and created electronic medical records to improve care for patients with uh, diabetes and congestive heart failure. I'm going to read you uh, uh, something from the New York Times about, about that program. Quote, the highly knowledgeable clinical care specialists serve as personal assistants to severely ill patients, going with them to doctor's offices, being available by cell phone to answer questions, and teaching them to manage their diseases. The, their efforts have reduced doctor visits and medical complications. Patients with diabetes have lower glucose levels. Those with congestive heart failure have remained stable rather than getting worse, end quote. Yet, the providers who participated in that program saw their revenues fall because managing those diseases better meant they provided fewer services overall. They improved the quality of care, but they were paid less. As a result, many doctors refused to, to participate in the program, and this is not actually an isolated incident. Again, the New York Times, quote, when Intermountain Healthcare, a Salt Lake City hospital system, improved care for its pneumonia patients by making sure they received the right drugs, it lost money, end quote. Avoidable hospital admissions cost Americans billions of dollars each year and unnecessarily exposed patients to medication errors and hospital-acquired infections. The chairman of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission recently testified before Congress that, quote, the kinds of strategies that appear to av reduce avoidable readmissions include preventing adverse events during the admission, reviewing each patient's medications at discharge for appropriateness, and communicating more clearly with beneficiaries about their self-care at discharge, end quote. Now, those sound like reasonable steps that would improve the quality of care. The problem is that when hospitals adopt those strategies, they, they receive fewer admissions and their revenues fall. Now, the left frequently points to these perverse incentives and the quality failures that result as evidence, as, as evidence that healthcare is too complicated to be left to the market. Yeah, that's, that claim doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Markets have developed health plans that excel in these dimensions of quality. We've heard about some of them today. In fact, the first health plan that the market uh, developed was uh, created in Los Angeles in 1929. The irony is that these are not market failures but government failures. 
The entity that's penalizing those quality efforts is the federal government, most often the Medicare program. And, that, and the health care reforms that the left is now pushing through Congress, I submit, promise to make that situation much, much worse. Now, why is this? Well, free mar- the way that a free market promotes quality health care is largely through uh, what seems like an obscure form of competition, and that's competition between different payment systems, between different ways of paying doctors and hospitals. Because different payments and different payment systems uh, uh, encourage healthcare providers providers to promote different dimensions of quality. For example, under what is called prepayment or capitation, providers receive a fixed budget to, for a defined patient population. Prepayment encourages providers to invest in things like electronic medical records, care coordination, error reduction, even comparative effectiveness research. Kaiser Permanente, which is a prepaid health plan, actually leads the industry in these areas precisely because prepayment allows the for-profit Permanente Medical Group to keep any money it saves by using, say, disease management to avoid uh, hospital admissions or uh, using electronic medical records to avoid duplicative tests or or medical errors. Fee-for-service payment, on the other hand, pays providers an additional fee for each additional service or hospital admission. Fee-for-service payment promotes dimensions of quality like choice of providers and gives patients easier access to more intensive services, but it also penalizes providers that try to improve uh, those other dimensions of quality. Now, a a free market or even a reasonably free market, uh, I would argue, requires a level playing field for all payment systems where competitive pressures can force each payment system to improve on the dimensions of quality where they're weak, to to overcome the perverse incentives that exist uh, in their own payment system. So when prepaid plans like Kaiser Permanente offer electronic medical records, fee-for-service providers would have to do so as well or they would lose customers. Those customers would go to Kaiser for more convenience. The same would happen in reverse. Prepaid plans have an incentive to skimp on necessary care because the, the, the plan also gets to keep that money as well. But competition from fee-for-service plans would discourage them from doing so. The U.S. healthcare sector, however, is not that reasonably free market. Rather than allow a level playing field, government tips the scales toward fee-for-service. The federal uh, Medicare program is the largest purchaser of medical services in the world, and it operates largely on a fee-for-service basis. The tax code, the federal tax code, encourages fee-for-service payment and discourages prepayment. State-level clinician and insurance licensing laws, the things that, uh, that keep you from purchasing insurance from, uh, that's, that's licensed and regulated by another state or prevent clinicians from taking their licenses uh, across state lines to practice medicine, those also discourage uh, or pr- place disproportionate burdens on prepaid health plans. With all of these interventions, the government creates a steady stream of revenue for low-quality providers and penalizes any quality innovations, and these include electronic medical records, barcode scanners for prescription drugs that help, help uh, avoid medical errors, surgery checklists, any innovation that would have the effect of avoiding unnecessary services. The problems with America's healthcare delivery system, rather than an example of market failure, arise because government protects low-quality providers by stifling competitive pressures from more efficient providers. And it's not, I want to be clear, the problem here is not fee-for-service. Fee-for-service is as legitimate a way of paying doctors and hospitals as prepayment or any sort of blended payment system. The problem is that we don't have open competition between all payment systems so that we can uh, realize the quality gains that each can provide. Now, in the face of these government failures, the response from Congress is to keep on digging. The the reforms currently making their way through Congress would further stifle this quality-enhancing competition between different payment systems. For example, the uh, Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee today is marking up a bill from by Senator Ted Kennedy, that would create a new government program with a payment system modeled on Medicare. Now, he, 
you may have heard that they're going to, this new government program will pay 10 percent more than Medicare pays. That's really not, not, to my mind, even the most important issue. The important issue is that it would lock even more of the marketplace into fee-for-service payment, and we would get more of the same rather than uh, the sorts of reforms that would improve the way we deliver care. President Obama's uh, proposal to create a health insurance exchange where individuals uh, can, can choose from competing health plans might appear to be uh, to give that give us that sort of quality enhancing competition between different payment systems. But consider that the, the health insurance mandates that uh, that, are, that are also part of the Obama plan, as well as the regulations that are necessary to make uh, these exchanges work give fee-for-service insurers and uh, fee-for-service providers who have organized their practice around those incentives additional policy levers that they can pull in order to uh, restrict competition from different payment systems. Massachusetts uh, uh, is... uh, We've had some discussion about the reforms in Massachusetts already today. They have uh, uh, created a health insurance exchange and subsidized health care in that state. And what has happened is costs have exploded in the first place that the – well, maybe not in the first place, but the place that the Commonwealth has now turned in order to, to try to contain those uh, – the, the, uh, the, the uh, runaway spending in Massachusetts is to uh, completely change the entire – all payment systems uh, in Massachusetts over to prepayment, to have a single payment system with absolutely no competition from any other payment systems, which, uh, which would – which may solve some of the problems that we see in a system heavily dominated by fee-for-service, but would trade those problems for the, the problems that come with uh, prepayment, the, the problems that come with uh, providers uh, skimping on uh, necessary care without any competition from fee-for-service providers uh, to check that. So actually, the, the, the Massachusetts reforms, if they, if they go the way of adopting the single uh, payment system, would take Massachusetts just a little bit closer to systems like Canada, like the NHS, that operate on that uh, prepaid basis. Improving the delivery system I don't think can be done by government dictate because the government's decisions are going to be unduly influenced by those who want to protect the status quo. And that happens whenever we see this going to happen uh, whenever whenever government tries to reform, quote, the payment system. It's going to happen with all these rifle shot reforms like... um, uh, promoting subsidizing health information technologies, comparative effectiveness research, coordinated care, error reduction, pay for performance. These are all things that, that open competition between payment systems will promote. But when, when the government is trying to promote them, uh, they're going, those efforts are going to be blocked by exi- incumbent provider, providers are made more expensive than they need to be. The key to reforming the delivery system is to let consumers' choices and competition do the reforming. Let consumers control their health care dollars. Let them choose their own health plan. Let them buy insurance across state lines and let cl- clinicians take their licenses across state lines, including the Mayo Clinic, uh, pr- uh, practicing telemedicine, so that even prepaid pa- plans can compete on a level playing field and consumers can choose a Kaiser or a group health cooperative or a fee-for-service plan. It takes Medicare decades to make sometimes even minor changes to its payment systems. Consumers who control their healthcare dollars can change their payment systems in, in a heartbeat. And uh, I just close by saying you get what you pay for, and I don't think there's any better way to ensure that we're going to be paying for quality than if we let consumers control the money. So thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. Right, so all of our speakers uh, have been unanimous in their uh, basically diagnosis of the problem in the healthcare system that essentially for two and a half trillion dollars a year, we're buying the healthcare equivalent of a 1962 Pontiac. 
uh, as Shannon said, a system that's deeply dysfunctional, fragmented, and chaotic. Uh, Alan used the phrase cottage industry. Uh, Regina used the phrase an industry that's in stage one rather when it should really be in stage two or arguably three. Uh, a system characterized by lack of safety, lack of evidence, Lots of waste, no business case in it for health information technology, no inherent market forces for right-sizing capacity, therefore excess capacity, subject to conflicts of interest, no incentive for continuous quality improvement or process redesign, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So great consensus on the diagnosis. A little bit different story when it comes to the solutions that our various doctors of the healthcare system today recommend. Uh, we heard a ringing endorsement from Allen for moving more and more to more integrated healthcare delivery systems around global payment, which, which is the new phrase that we resurrected from the past to describe capitation, since that word can no longer be used uh, uh, in polite company, uh, but more global payment uh, w- with systems that essentially are induced to have the kinds of business cases that he said that they had, and uh, he illustrated in the case of Kaiser, for process redesign, for capturing savings uh, by virtue of that process redesign, et cetera, et cetera. We heard Shannon not necessarily endorse, but describe another option that is emerging in the uh, most likely we'll see this in the Senate Finance Committee bill in particular, which is this notion of accountable care organizations, which we'll, we'll see how the details come out of the Senate Finance bill. But more or less, these are kind of virtual integrated delivery systems. Uh, they're essentially not a deliberate effort to pull together an organization like a Kaiser Permanente. They're an effort to kind of circumscribe areas of the country around which you could pull together a group of providers, hospitals, and doctors, or doctors uh, largely, potentially even retain the fee-for-service system, but essentially move them more to virtual integration so that they act more like a Kaiser and are paid more like a Kaiser and, very importantly, are put under a kind of de facto long-term budget that also gives them opportunities for gain sharing so that if they don't grow as fast as the current system grows, they actually benefit by virtue of doing that. They benefit in terms of increased compensation to the individuals in that system. Then we heard Regina's uh, uh, basically a plea for us to move more in the direction of focus factories, not necessarily integrated delivery systems, because as she said, it's, there's, it's not clear they can be replicated around the country, but focus factories that will focus very cleanly on the things that they do well. So a focus factory of that, like Duke, she mentioned the example of Duke focusing on congestive heart failure, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, different solutions. And then, of course, finally, we had Michael say what really what we need to do is open up the, uh, to the system to have different forms of competition among different types of payment, because the payment is to a large degree going to drive the delivery system. If we have competition among fever service as well as integrated delivery, things will work much better. So with that, uh, we just have a few minutes left for questions. Let's sit, take some of the questions in the audience first. Uh, let's see. Let's go right here. Well, um, my question, uh, I'm very interested in the focus factory idea. Uh, my question would be, uh, how does that avoid the serious pitfalls of prepayment, which, uh, quite frankly, as a physician, we do not think is working? Uh, HMOs have uh, been known as healthy members only. It's a, it's a system that really... Uh, prevents good care by 
penalizing physicians for proper referrals. So how is that, your system, going to be different from that to avoid that pitfall? Okay, so the concept I have is these focused factories would be created and run by the people who know how to do it. Who knows how to do it? I sure as hell don't. You know how to do it. It's physicians and care providers who know how to do it. How would they be paid? They would quote a fixed price. Uh, The price would be risk-adjusted for different categories of patients. The insurers would then perform a different function. Their job would not be to manage you. That would be ridiculous. That would be like me managing you. Don't know. It would be a totally non-value-added activity. The role of the insurers would be as marketing agents, so they would offer different kinds of focused factories with their prices and with their outcomes measured on a risk-adjusted basis to the consuming public, and people would choose among them. Now, to go back to our job-based system, the job-based system, as somebody here said, the employers do not like to give a lot of choice for a variety of reasons. So... This idea of giving people lots of choice. How much choice do people have in the usual economies? Do you know how many SKUs there are in the average supermarket? Anybody want to take a guess? You'll never see me again. You may as well take a guess. It's 42,000. So people choose among 42,000 SKUs in order to buy their food. People are willing to handle choice, and they do it very intelligently, but not when an intermediate agent, namely the employer, probably with good intentions, limits that choice. John. John, you want to wait for the mic? Mike's not working. Is that on? Yeah. Okay, great. The supply, it seems to me, is a real problem. You know, sure, there are lots of issues with the way we pay for care, but, you know, we have a Medicare Advantage program that empowers individuals with lots of money to go out and shop for more effective care, uh, more efficient. And we had a model in Massachusetts where our doctors were earning 300% of RBRVS in little groups of five and six primary care docs using a blackboard, not an integrated electronic medical record, and they were managing care, delivering quality, delivering value, and they all got taken over by the billion-dollar capitalized factories that we call MGH, Brigham and Women's, New England Medical Center, et cetera, et cetera. We have a real supply issue. The entrepreneur, And you're turning out lots of MD, MBAs, and they all, as clinicians, want to either go into consulting with McKinsey or open a LASIK center, they don't seem to want to supply these integrated delivery systems or focus factories. And it feels to me like that's a real issue. I I don't know how, as a a trainer of young people, you grapple with that. Yeah, um, just as a response to that, when you have monopsony, you have monopoly. So as the insurers have consolidated all over the countries and become more and more oligopsonist, The providers have also consolidated. It's a very rational response to it to say, you're not going to beat me up by playing off A versus B. A and B are going to become partners, right? This uh, union, which is a bargaining unit, essentially, not true integrated. 
I think the only way to break through that is to have focused factories, which are not integrated delivery systems, but much smaller units that focus on diabetes or congestive heart failure or something like that, which it is feasible for entrepreneurs to start. This how do we how do we get from here to there? I mean, do you have a? We need to change our payment system. I think Michael is absolutely right. The problem is the payment system, which penalizes entrepreneurial effort, penalizes quality. How much worse could this payment system get? Penalizes long-term investments. Just, it's totally perverse. We need to change the payment system. I'd love to have competition among payment systems. That's what we have in the rest of the economy. And let the best woman win. Let, let me ask Michael. Let, let me ask... Let me ask Michael, just on the subject of competition among payment systems, uh, you, you basically blame Medicare for a lot of the problems with fee-for-service. Of course, fee-for-service greatly predates Medicare program. Uh, and we have internally within Medicare right now, we've got Medicare Advantage and we've got Medicare fee-for-service. We, we happen to be incentivizing Medicare Advantage because we're paying it 14% more than we're paying Medicare fee-for-service. So... Is the way out of this a competitive bidding type proposal under Medicare, as uh, the Obama administration has proposed? How, how, do, how do we get to the competitive future you're describing? I think I, would, I think I would rather see a voucher proposal where Medicare gives each beneficiary a voucher and just lets them choose from any plan that's on the market. The, the more involved the government gets, as I said, the more policy levers there are to pull. Uh, Fee-for-service uh, fee service has been around, f I think, for as long as there have been physicians, and actually probably so has capitation, and there's been sort of a fight. Physicians have always preferred fee-for-service because it, it tends to give them more autonomy and higher incomes. Uh, Medicare, as, long as, a, as well as a lot of other interventions, I think, in the 20th century, really helped uh, lock fee-for-service into place and uh, really take over a growing share of the market as, as Medicare grew. With Medicare Advantage and Medicare Plus Choice before that, there has been some competition within Medicare, uh, from, but, but it's not, it, as I said, there are too many policy levers to be pulled by people who either want to keep uh, fee-for-service a dominant payment system or people who just don't like private insurance. I mean, uh, I think that what you, what you said is uh, we're over-subsidizing uh, the, the private plans. We're over-subsidizing the private fee-for-service plans as well as the private prepaid plans. And in January, I don't think the president-elect helped things when he said maybe we should just toss all the private plans out of Medicare entirely. I think that's the, that's, that's the sort of um, uh, problem that you run into. Well, it's, it's, I don't, it's yet another way that, um, that, uh, that, that the government's influence can be used to block this sort of competition, not even from self-interested uh, uh, plans or providers. Okay. Uh, Michael, do we have permission to go a few more minutes, or do you want to wrap this up? Sure. Okay. Good. Let's take uh, let's take a couple of questions here, and uh, how about this one right here? Hi, I'm uh, Richard Sorello. I'm a family physician, which probably makes me not only a minority here, but an endangered species uh, everywhere. <clears throat> uh, and I'm interested in Dr. Herzlinger's opinion about. The uh, patient-centered medical home, do you think that fits the criteria for your focused factory? Because, indeed, that's the model right now that several primary care specialties have backed, you know, pediatrics, internal medicine, family medicine. And if anyone else, you know, has an yeah. opinion. 
I personally think it's a great model, but I think it should compete with other models, with models that are led by specialty physicians or models that are led by specialty nurses who are very expert in communication. It's very difficult to predict who is going to be the best value for the money. Uh, you know, Sam Walton, who started Walmart, even though Walmart has many failures, Walmart did bring prices down enormously in retailing. He was just a hick out of Arkansas. People were laughing at him when they said, gee, I'm going to open big stores in rural areas. People said, what the heck have you been smoking? You know, that's insane. So you never know who is going to be successful. So it's a great idea. I hate the verbiage around it, which is it is the solution. Let it compete with other kinds of solutions. Let's be transparent. Let's give people choices. I think I personally would like a lot. Shannon? I think there's actually quite a bit of evidence to predict that that um, that building a primary care infrastructure would have the effects that, they, that we want, which is better coordination of chronic care reduction in cost. Um, the reductions in costs come from a variety of sources. One of them is having patients who could have been cared for in the primary care office not going to the emergency room. Uh, another one is unnecessary hospitalizations and sort of profligate referrals. And primary care physicians, where we have places with, with robust primary care physician practices, we see uh, much better much better outcomes. So, number one, we do have a fair amount of evidence that primary care is really key here. Maybe special, you know, maybe specialists can be medical homes. But number two, I think the medical medical home concept is not fleshed out enough. One of the things that um, John was talking about John, was was that they um, they created this capitated system that actually paid the primary care physicians considerably more. Um, they. They, the, those physicians took on risk, and so they had a financial incentive to do a better job in terms of keeping their patients out of the hospital by giving them better care. Another way to do that is to simply, you know, is, is to have ways of measuring what they're doing and asking them to getting physicians to do a better job in terms of how they care for their chronically ill patients. You can do it in a number of ways, but I think that you have to pay primary care physicians more so that they can create the integrated model they need, they need, you know, nurses, they need a, a nutritionist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you have to get them out from under the burden of having to wrestle with insurance companies. That's another piece of it. All right, let's take two more questions. We'll take one here and one over here. Hi. Uh, am I on? Can everybody hear me? I'm, I'm uh, Don McDaniel. I'm with uh, Johns Hopkins uh, Cary Business School. Uh, Dr. Herzlinger, you've written quite a bit about uh, the, um, the, the barriers or the obstacles created by the many moneyed interests that are already entrenched in healthcare, the status quo loving uh, interests, the AHAs, you know, onslaught against single specialty hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is a tag on to the competition question. I'd like to be interested in anybody's uh, comment about that and what needs to be done vis-a-vis uh, -vis leveling the playing field to allow innovation entrepreneurship to, to move forward. And then a quick add-on, I'm going to sit down. Uh, we've talked about information technology in the context of EMRs, but we don't really have interoperability. So everybody can have an EMR, but they don't talk to each other. So how are we going to facilitate communication you know, like the ATM network, as an example, that we really need to drive down you know, process costs and transaction costs? So thanks. Reggie. 
Well, we have a healthcare system that's defined by inputs, physicians, hospitals, nursing home, dialysis. If you describe any other industry, do you describe it by inputs? No, you describe it by outcomes. I'm buying a personal computer. I'm buying a PTA. I'm buying a PDA. I'm buying dinner. I'm buying an avocado. So it's a very strange kind of system. And what it, since you get paid by input, you get paid by being a hospital, by being a doctor, by being a dialysis center, it sets up this very destructive turf warfare among these different inputs where they use uh, political means to try to undermine each other. What we need is a payment system that focuses on units that consumers want to buy. If I had diabetes, I would want to buy a diabetes-focused factory. That is what I would want to buy. If I had AIDS, I would want to buy a group of providers who are demonstrably good in treating AIDS. That's the kind of competition we need. That's the kind of competition we have in the rest of the U.S. economy, which, after all, is an enormously productive economy, something we should not forget. What do we do about the fact that uh, the body is the ultimate integrated delivery system? And uh, we have an increasing problem of multiple chronic conditions in the same individual. Uh, You you can't just go from one focus factory to another. Here's one for diabetes. Here's one for my heart condition. Here's one for my hypertension. How do you you escape the notion that in the end you're going to have to have some integration among that system? So uh, Susan's very good question illustrates the problem. When I say diabetes-focused factory, she's thinking endocrinologist. I'm thinking endocrinologist, nephrologist, cardiologist, podiatrist, neurologist, dermatologist, exercise physiologist, food nutritionist, and the psychiatric and social support that people with diabetes need. In other words, if I were organizing a focus factory, recognizing the reality of the problem you're talking about, would I just deal with endocrinologists? Hell no. I know the number one cost of diabetes, heart disease. I would have cardiologists who specialize in diabetics. Uh, Heart disease and diabetics are very different from other kinds of heart disease. Ophthalmologists specialize in diabetics. The market would take care of it. Why would it take care of it? Because I wouldn't want to lose my customers. I wouldn't want my customers to say, you know, you're not providing the services I need. I would make sure that I would provide the services that they need. What we need is a competitive, transparent market to enable this revolution in medical care. Alan? Alan? I I think really we're all saying we need a open, transparent market for informed, cost-conscious consumers. The reason I talk about integrated delivery systems is because I believe they perform a whole lot better, and it's, I use that to make the case for why we need competition and why people ought to be able to choose that. But I readily agree that there are other possibilities, and I don't think that uh, the exact mode of, of operation ought to be determined uh, by debates between business school professors. I think they ought to be uh, determined by an open market and a level playing field. Um, I do think, uh, Reggie, that <clears throat> these are are not quite as extreme as uh, the focused factory or the integrated delivery system are not as, as, as um, extremely different as one might think. For one thing, the integrated delivery systems do create a lot of their own focused factories, <clears throat> and they also outsource 
uh, patients to other leading focus factories. Um, so, you know, the 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 mar- the markets the, it kind of it's kind of mixed, and under market pressures, you you might well see uh, more of that. All right, I have to create a very uneven playing field and just select one last question or so. You, sir. Yes, uh, I'm Liberatus de Rosa. I'm a physician in primary type care, uh, and I wanted to just, uh, you know, take a moment to just warn and to uh, and to maybe uh, ask that we all consider some a couple of important factors in choosing whatever we choose to do in the next couple of years. And that those things are the following. I, I think we're really dealing with a very complex system that's not that's very poorly defined. You know, we're talking about healthcare, but here, but we're not. You really haven't talked about healthcare because we don't know. We haven't defined what health is. So I think very critical issue is that we are just starting to understand what health is, and we're just starting to discuss it, and we're trying to make decisions about a system. Uh, that might be difficult to change. So whatever we do, I think we ought to do it in a way that's at least changeable and least codified as possible. So the, the fear of a centralized system is very scary for me because it gets codified and impossible to change, whereas if you leave a free enterprise system and a thing that's more open and more varied, it can change as we get more knowledge. So I, th- and I think we ought to stop using the word health care and call it illness and injury care. Uh, and and that's really what we're talking about in terms of cost and in terms of quality, because you can't measure the quality of health care because we don't know the definition. It's mind, body, spiritual, social wellness. Sir, sir, I, it, because we're 15 minutes into lunch already, I got to ask you to get to a question. If there's a question, I, just, I said at the beginning I want to just make a comment. So okay. That's all. Thanks. Okay, well, that's a, a useful comment. I think we better wrap it up here and get everybody on to lunch. Uh, join me in thanking this panel for a terrific discussion. Well, well, it's fun. Thank you so much.